Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Dave Glick. Dave has been professionally developing software for almost two decades. He is passionate about open source, .NET, and the intersection of the two. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Dave, before we kind of get into the, the meat of things, would you give a little introduction to yourself you know, maybe tell the listeners sort of where, you know, how you got started in the industry? Sure. Um, I did my homework, so I knew this question was coming. Um, I, you know, I started off a long, long time ago, back when I was in elementary school. Um, I was fortunate enough that we had um, some folks on our block who were kind of into early programming back in the early 80s. Um, And so me and a few of the other kids uh, on our in our neighborhood, um, would get together once a week, and um, one of the other dads would sort of give us programming classes. And you know, at the time, it was super new and novel. And you know, there was this whole, oh, you mean I can like write my own games? Um, so we loved it. Uh, you know, and so I I learned sort of the the rules of logic, um, you know, program flow, um, even sort of how to debug from that experience back on the old, you know, the old days we had to print out your code on the kind of spool of paper. And then you kind of unfolded the whole thing. I'm like, oh no, here's where it went wrong. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for, for quite a while from, uh, from those early days in basic all the way up through .NET now with a couple sort of uh, side excursions in uh, Java and C++. Okay. So uh, what do you do these days? Um, so during the day, I have a relatively boring job developing um, back-end line of business software. Um, but, you know, boring can be good. Sure. Um, you know, I... I <laughs> pays the bills. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I tend to stretch in the evenings and on the weekends um, and, and try and do as much open source work as I can, um, both in terms of coding, but also I like to kind of keep up to date and stay involved in the open source community as well. Um, I think that's kind of important. How did you get started in open source software? Did you find a project that you could contribute to or, or was there something that spurred that transition or, or that direction into open source software? Yeah, and actually, it's kind of funny because um, my first foray into open source was not in .NET directly. Um, I was doing a lot of XML work about ten years ago, and and was a .NET, you know, developing in a .NET shop at the time. But there really wasn't any great um, storage technology for XML documents, at least in terms of things like XML standards like XQuery and XPath um, and so on. So my very first open source project um, that I, I kind of wrote for that effort, but open sourced and yeah, it never gained a huge audience, but the experience was great. Um, I, I took a Java, an open source Java XML database um, called XBase 
and used a fantastic tool that cross-compiles Java bytecode to .NET IL. Did that and ended up creating a .NET wrapper around the cross-compiled code. And so that was my first open source project. Um, it, it worked surprisingly well. And I think uh, the experience of making something that was, you know, actually worked and was useful, um, <laughs> you know, kind of kind of gave me a bug and uh, I've, I've been doing it ever since. One of the projects you've been working on and, and that I think we were, were probably going to spend a fair amount of time on a little bit later is an open source static site generation tool. Maybe we can spend just a few minutes on what is static site generation or what are static site generators. I've heard of tools in JavaScript, in the React world, like Gatsby. Uh, Clayton and I were discussing Jekyll a little bit earlier. Is that the same type of thing we're talking about here? Yeah, good question. So it's similar in one sense and different in another, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, but when we talk about static site generation, what we're really talking about is when you render a website or a web app. Um, I kind of hate the term static site because it gives the completely wrong impression about what it is that these tools do. Um, but, it, you know, that's kind of the term we... The, we're stuck with and is kind of caught on. So that's that's the term that everyone's familiar with. But the idea is, you know, with any website, there's a point at which the code that you write, particularly if it involves code and backend services and stuff, um, you know, no one just writes plain old HTML anymore. So there's a point at which the code that you write gets rendered, gets turned into something that a browser reads. Um, and the stuff that the browser reads, you can think of as being static files, right? Um, the browser, even though it can execute stuff like JavaScript, the JavaScript comes down as a text document or embedded within a text document. Um, so the stuff that your browser receives is all text. It's all static. Um, you know, it gets images, it gets text, it combines those things, and then it, it does some client-side code. Um, but the big key in static site generation is when do you generate that static stuff that the web browser receives? In a sort of traditional backend web app or website, um, something like ASP.NET, um, that often happens at runtime or at request time. Um, the user hits a page in a browser, the request comes through, a URL along with some other stuff, hits the server, the server looks at it and says, okay, this person's asking for this page. I'm going to go ahead and run the code to generate it, or I'm going to return the code that I previously ran and cached. Um, some people stick CDNs or um, caching providers in front of that, and so they kind of can intercept some of those calls and return stuff. But the point is that all that code is running on a web server somewhere at some point as the result of a request. Um, a static site generator turns that around and tries to um, come up with a full range of all of the possible requests or pages a user could want to look at. And then we generate all of those all at once up front. So um, they often have a longer initial build time because you have to go through and essentially do every request that anyone could possibly make, whether that's a individual page, whether it's um, things like data files, whether it's permutations of a page, you generate it all. Um, and then you upload it to the web server. And so when the browser requests something, the client wants a page or a resource, it's done. It's already there. Um, and you just have to deliver it. 
So that opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of how you distribute the site, the security posture of the site, the speed with which those resources can be delivered, um, because now there's no longer any logic or anything taking place. So, so that's really what a static site generator does. Now, I think the part where a lot of people get confused over this methodology is in thinking that that's all there is, that I'm, I'm going to spit out a bunch of HTML files, and that's that, and my site can never have any interactivity or anything. Um, but that couldn't be further from the truth, because as it turns out, um, we all have wonderful little application environments sitting right inside our browsers. Um, and so if you deliver code to the client in the form of JavaScript or, or now um, we're getting WASM and WebAssembly as another possible code execution um, environment, that you can do all kinds of fun dynamic stuff, even if you've pre-generated all of the resources that the client receives. So modern static sites are anything but, um, and there's all kinds of fun techniques you can use to uh, give them interactivity that rivals some of your most dynamic server-side rendered um, applications. So if I understand what you're saying, and I was kind of in that boat where it was my understanding that a static site generator, yes, it would go through the different permutations that that it expected that a user may request, but the end result was, was basically HTML files with some CSS. But your definition sounds more like a spa could fit in that category. But typically when somebody's building a spa, or or at least in the in the industry that that I work in, the spa gets downloaded and then it makes an API call. In a static site, would you be able to make the API call or would you have to find some other way to acquire and and display the data? Yeah, so you can do both. Um, a pattern that I've become really fond of and, and tend to gravitate more and more towards is using a static site generator to create a spa-like front end. Um, I'm actually very fond of, uh, for lack of a better term, mini spas, um, basically feature-focused pages on a site where you use some sort of spa technology. I, I prefer Vue, but you can use React or Angular for this just as well. So you kind of create a bunch of little feature-focused spas so that as the user navigates around from large feature to large feature in the app, you're still jumping between pages. Um, so that helps kind of keep the context steady, right? One of the problems that I think people have discovered over the years with um, big sort of omni-spas that cover the entire application is they can get really hard to reason about. You've got all these routes and all these views, and all of it is going through one router and, and um, one set of code, and, and that can get hard to deal with. Um, so, so if you split that up, um, you know, it kind of helps get a little more focus into each of these feature areas. And you can still do spa-like stuff on that, um, on that page. You can have it load multiple views. You can do wizards, whatever. Um, but but use a static site generator to create these JavaScript-based uh, mini-spas. And then the, the JavaScript code can call whatever APIs you want to. So I'll often back a, if I'm doing a web app, I'll often back it with a, an actual API. Um, you know, that's got no UI component at all. You know, the ASP.NET Core web API works really well for this. And so then you write all of your JavaScript code and statically generate that 
and then it can call into your API to retrieve any more dynamic or database-focused data that you might need to retrieve. Um, one nice way to augment that pattern is if there are uh, data elements that you know beforehand, let's say you maybe have a, sh a uh, storefront, right? Um, there's going to be parts of that storefront. Um, let's say you're building Amazon. There's going to be parts of that that you really can't pre-generate. You know, they're based on the user, for example. Um, when I when I come to Amazon, it shows me a whole bunch of stuff that's based on me. There's no way I can possibly pre-generate everything for all of the users, um, especially if users can register on the fly and do all that. But things like your product list, um, that is fairly set. I may add new products regularly, but when I add them, I know I'm adding them. Um, so what I maybe could do is create data files, JSON, YAML, whatever, even a database um, that contains the data for each of my product pages, and then have a static site generator come in, read that data, whether it's a data file that I can use at generation time, or it's in a database that I can pull when I'm generating, whatever. As long as my generator can get to the data, the generator can create more static uh, resources like pages for each product that can then be augmented with more dynamic functionality using JavaScript on the client side and calling into things like a web API. Um, so you get this really nice hybrid approach where you can speed up the performance of your app by pre-generating all of the stuff that you know beforehand. Um, if it's not something that changes over time, it's something you can pre-generate. And even if it is something that changes over time, if you know the cadence at which it changes, a common um, static site generator pattern that people have settled on is periodic regeneration. Um, you know, regenerating the site, running your static generator every two hours, overnight, every 30 minutes. Um, there's actually a site from the fine folks at Netlify that literally regenerates the website every second. And the, the static site has a clock. And you can tell it what time zone you're in, and it will show you a real-time updated clock, except the gimmick is the whole site is statically generated. It's just statically generated so often and so fast, and it's deployed so quickly as kind of a showcase of Netlify's deployment technology that it looks like you're looking at a JavaScript clock, but you're not. You're looking at an HTML page that just gets refreshed every second. So you can do some pretty wild stuff by mixing and matching some of these technologies. How would you know that your site, so like a large portion of web development these days is spas. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of the way to go. And by your definition, a spa is almost inherently a static site because the JavaScript is pre-compiled or the WebAssembly is pre-compiled. Right. And so you're just streaming that down and then it does connect to an API, but you said that that's not off limits. How would you know that your spa is a good candidate for, I guess, extending the static nature of of your site? Are, are there any are there any guidelines that exist? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, because modern spas, particularly ones that are more Angular and React based, where the JavaScript sort of takes over the entire site, by and large, inherently static, right? I mean, because they're JavaScript driven. And then there's all of these um, technologies built around those to help sort of do server-side rendering and, um, you know, to kind of unstatically, you know, unstatify them. So it's almost like that community is going in the opposite direction. 
So, yeah, I mean, there's an interesting thing happening right now where the entire web development community is kind of trying to decide what all these things really mean and what what pegs fit in which holes. There really aren't any good guidelines that I've seen other than that if your site is already mostly static resources, like if it's already built on something like React, trying to to rethink that and refactor it into something that would fit a static generator um, to do like rendering beforehand. Um, they're very different paradigms. Um, so while you would probably, or, or you could potentially see some gains by doing that, um, it certainly wouldn't just be a, hey, take this React site and run it through Hugo, and now I've got a static site. Um, you'd have to kind of rethink the entire architecture because um, really your static generator, um, you're going to get the most benefit if you're having it spit out um, lots of like HTML files that have either um, links to JavaScript or embedded JavaScript in them. Um, you could certainly use a static generator to generate a full-up spa. Um, Gatsby uh, kind of bridges that gap in a way. It's a very interesting project. Um, but by and large, when people hear static site generator, we still think that I'm generating a whole bunch of HTML files. Uh, it just happens that those HTML files can include JavaScript to make them dynamic. I happened to work for a company for a little while that uh, I was tasked with helping them improve quality and, and introduce policies and procedures and practices to to help achieve that goal of a better quality, higher quality. One of the teams was working on a Gatsby site. And when I asked, how are they delivering quality? How are they assuring quality? How are they testing this? Are they writing unit tests? Are they writing integration tests? Is it, no, no, it's a static site. <laughs> Well, you're, you're producing a static site eventually, um, but but surely the the artifacts themselves or the generators have logic, has have business logic, have something that is inherently testable, right? And that is super insightful, and something that I think as a community that the folks who are interested in static site generators um, are kind of uh, starting to realize is that, you know, I start out by saying really the main difference is just when you run the code. Um, code is still running. And if code is running, code is testable. In the same way that you change thoughts about when you're running that code and what you're using to spit out your resources for the, the web application, um, you know, it just requires a little bit of retraining in terms of how you think about testing. But that's not to say it can't be tested. Um, quite the contrary, it should be tested. In fact, I'd, I'd argue that in a lot of cases, you can actually test a statically generated site a bit better because it should be reproducible, right? You expect when you run your static generator, given the same inputs, it's going to be deterministic and you'll end up with the same outputs. So if you can deterministically build your site and there's no outside variables, um, that then becomes something you can test. Um, given this input, when I run my generator, do I get the expected output? Um, and so you can do nice things around testing how the site is built, which which I think improves quality quite a bit. You know, I keep talking about the static generator communities, static site generators. Um, there's one term I haven't dropped that I'll I'll drop just because people may have heard it, and that's Jamstack. You may have heard the term Jamstack be thrown around. Um, that was coined by the, the folks over at Netlify when they discovered they had trouble marketing 
static site hosting as a thing. You know, they'd go into businesses and be like, hey, we, you know, we're a great host for your static site. And the business is like, well, I need a host for my static site. <laughs> um, and so then they would have the exact conversation we've just been having. And it became hard to really convey that point. So um, a long time ago, their founders kind of went through this process of trying to figure out, you know, how can we how can we market this better? What can we term can we put on this concept that um, people would understand? And so, you know, we've got the LAMP stack, you've got, you know, you've got all these stacks. So the JAM stack stands for JavaScript APIs and markup. Um, markup being either HTML or Markdown or something that gets rendered into a HTML file. Um, and that, you know, that pretty well, those three um, points of the triangle there pretty well cover what comprises a nice dynamic static site, um, <laughs> right? You've got your markup, which which is your static resource. And then riding along with that is your JavaScript, which your client executes. And that then can call APIs, whether it's an API you wrote or increasingly common, some kind of software as a service to augment that site on the client. So is that generation that we were talking about, the, the tools, are, are they generally following that markup or markdown? That's what they're using to, to, to go through those permutations? Or like, I mean, we, we do, we use the static site as well, but again, it's uh, React basically taking over the whole thing and we're serving up the, the, the JavaScript and, and then, um, but, but uh, when, when you're talking about going through the permutations and generating these HTML files, that information has to be stored and that is that stored in that markdown or is there markdown and code that goes along with that? I, I guess I'm a little bit confused. Most sort of popular static site generators today um, have found their sweet spot in blogs. And, and there's a good reason because blogs kind of hit that sweet spot. You know, we're talking about the, the shopping example. Um, a blog kind of hits that sweet spot between um, stuff that I already know and that doesn't change my posts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and stuff that maybe changes a little more dynamically, like, um, you know, comment systems or something. But by and large, when you create a blog, you know, there's lots of stuff in your blog, especially if you're doing tags, series. Um, you know, so there's lots of different perspectives on that data, but the data itself is is fairly consistent. Um, you maybe write a new post once a week if you're you know kind of prolific. If not, <laughs> you like me, you write a post maybe every year. <laughs> um, but you know, you know when you write a post, and when you do, you know that the data has changed, so you need to regenerate the site. Um, so blogs kind of serve this really nice sweet spot for static generation, where it's it's not totally HTML, right? I'm going to write a post and I want to do that in a way that's friendly for me to write. So I'm going to write it in Markdown, perhaps. Now, I don't want to have to go and add my navigation bars and my footers and all of that on every post I write. Um, I just want to write the Markdown. Um, so I need something that's going to turn that Markdown into HTML and put it within the context of the site as a whole, within my layout or whatever. Um, so that's that's really a kind of pristine, perfect use case for static site generation, um, because a static site generator is going to come through. It's going to take that markdown that you wrote. It's going to have you know an engine inside of it that knows how to turn markdown into HTML, and then it'll have some sort of layout engine that can then take that HTML from the markdown that you converted and stick it inside of a layout file. Um, it's going to be able to take the tags for that post 
and create tag clouds and tag indexes, um, bait indexes. You know, all of this is stuff that we can know at generation time. So the generator is going to take care of building all of that for you with your new post. But now one thing you asked was, what about the data, right? When I write a blog post and I'm writing Markdown, um, you know, I may have a, a title on my, my Markdown document, right? I may use the single hash, write a H1 at the top. So, okay, that, that's my title. But what about the author? What about the tags? What about the date? Um, you know, there's all this other metadata that goes along with that blog post. Um, so the very first stack generators, um, I think Jekyll might have been the one to popularize this technique. They use something called front matter. Um, so the idea with front matter is it's essentially a data file that you stick at the top of your Markdown file. Hmm. And you just delimit it from your Markdown using some sort of delimiter. Um, and most stack generators use like three dashes or three equal signs um, to delimit the data at the top of the file from the Markdown underneath of it. But what a static site generator is going to do is it's going to go in and it's going to take that block of front matter. Um, usually it's YAML because that's fairly easy to, to see and reason about in a um, Markdown file. But it, it might be JSON, uh, might even be XML. Who knows? It could be anything. But, but the generator is going to take that and assuming the generator knows how to read whatever format that front matter block is written in, it's going to go ahead and parse that out and create metadata that rides along with your, your blog post. And then the generator is going to be able to use that to generate all these other pages, like your tag and date indexes. And that's really, in a nutshell, what a static generator does. And they all work that way. They all kind of have a similar under-the-hood thing going on. Um, you know, read some sort of markup format, um, render it to HTML, interpret the front matter into metadata, and then run it through some kind of more higher-powered layout technology. So this is where I'll kind of start talking about Static, which is my open-source project. Yeah, I was going to say, is this where we decide, we know that we want to create a static site of some kind, now it's just a matter of which tool do we pick? Right, yeah. It's also where we decide that the existing static site generators four or five years ago. Um, one, we're not tremendously friendly to a .NET developer, so there's that. Even more importantly in my mind was that they just didn't have the kind of flexibility and power that, that we're used to with server-generated sites, right? When I go to write an ASP.NET site, I have the full breadth and depth of .NET at my disposal. And not only that, because most of these stack site generators, you can create plugins and stuff using whatever language the generator uses. Um, but, but more importantly than having access to a, a development environment and a runtime and a language, when I'm running an ASP.NET site, I'm not at all afraid to hit a database or to call some web service or to, to run arbitrary code that does whatever the heck I need it to do to spit out this web page, right? You know, if I'm doing uh, web forms, I may have a whole bunch of components on my page that I populate by reading from a database. I start asking, well, why can't I do that when I'm generating a static site? Like, why can't I go hit a database and populate pieces on my page with the result of the database? Because again, uh, when you really get down to it, the only difference here is when you're doing this rendering. So there really shouldn't be a difference um, you know, philosophically about the capabilities at my disposal if I'm doing the rendering before the request happens 
as compared to at request time. Yeah, reading through the uh, the marketing copy that you've got on <laughs> static.dev, listing uh, static as the world's most powerful static generation platform, allowing you to use or create a static generator that's exactly what you need. Yeah, it took me a long time to get to this. And, and one of the reasons I, I kind of migrated from YM to static, YM, again, was kind of a predecessor project. Um, and I, I rolled a lot of lessons learned into static. Um, it took me a long time to figure out the right delineation point, the right distinction between what makes a framework and a, a platform and what makes a tool. If we think about ASP.NET, and, and I, I, I really like that as a metaphor because it kind of captures what I've been trying to do as well. You know, I don't, ASP.NET does not make a website for me, right? Mm-hmm. It provides an engine on which I build my website on top of. That's what Static Framework does. It provides a toolkit and a platform onto which you can build whatever static generator you need to generate the site that you want to generate. Um, the idea being that you know almost all existing static generators, except for maybe Gatsby of the ones that I know about, um, take this position that, um, yeah, we're going to help you generate a site, but you're going to do it the way we want you to do it, right? We've got feature A, feature B, feature C, feature D, and um, you're going to use those features and maybe develop a plugin or two if we don't cover it all entirely. But but you're playing in that sandbox. Something like Rails or ASP.NET or um, Zend or Spring, you know, all of these server rendering frameworks all have a much more um, sort of open concept, right? We're going to give you some building blocks, but but it's up to you to put those building blocks together in the way that's appropriate for your site. So static framework is an attempt to take that philosophical position and apply it to static generators. Um, and then it just so happens that, well, okay, fine. If we've got all these building blocks, I can put them together in a way that is conventionally common and create an analogy to your Jekylls and your Hugos. Um, and that's what static web is. So if you, if, you know, if you just want to do a blog or you, um, it's static web is, is pretty flexible. So you could do all kinds of neat things with it. But basically, if you want to play in the sandbox that, that we've built, that is, you know, it's a big sandbox, but it's still a sandbox. Um, you can use static web, and we've taken care of a lot of the real complicated pieces for you. But you don't have to. You can go back to the lower-level framework and create a generator that is exactly what needs to happen for your site. If you don't like Markdown, don't include the Markdown support. Um, you know, if you'd rather use Handlebars to write all your blog posts, that's fine. You know, we've got a Handlebars module. Put that in there instead. You know, and so the idea is it's like Lego pieces for static site generation. Yeah, and it looks like all, all the code is, is hosted on GitHub. It looks like you've got a, a fair number of contributors already and some open issues that maybe somebody can take a look at. Uh, do you get a lot of involvement from the community? Do you get a lot of help and support in, in helping build and maintain the, this project? Yeah, so I was fortunate. So YM was around for about three years um, and went through two major versions. And I was fortunate that that, sort of built an audience of its own. And a lot of those folks have stuck with me. You know, it's always hard to go back after multiple years to an established community and say, hey, you know, that thing that you all really loved, 
um, I'm going to discontinue it and we're going to start from scratch and you have to relearn everything. <laughs> um, you know, so we tried, we tried along the way to make the transition as painless as possible. But, you know, it turns out that that starting a new project from scratch in a domain where there really wasn't any prior art, at least in .NET, um, there's a lot of lessons you learn along the way doing that. And at some point, uh, you have to make the decision, uh, am I going to carry the baggage or are we going to take the opportunity now before it gets too big to say, let's go ahead and rethink how we did some of these things and try it a second time and do it the right way. Um, and so that's kind of what static is, um, aside from also having a much better name. You know, <laughs> when I first named Wyam, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm so awesome. Best name ever. Um, and then after like three months, I was like, oh, this name really stinks. No one can pronounce it. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like, but, you know, then you're stuck with it. Um, so I, I have to admit that that some branding, uh, a chance to redo some of the branding was maybe one of the motivations here. Uh, very cool. Um, for listeners who are maybe trying to get into static site generation, trying to understand, because it does seem like there's a bit of a mindset that you have to, to, to take to understand seeing what what's optimal to to you know be uh you know the 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 right things to to be generating there ahead of time and and build and whatnot so but is there any particular resources you might point people to to learning static or using static or just getting into static site generation in general if you're a .NET developer and you're comfortable sort of spelunking through code bases and reverse engineering. Um, static is fairly easy to debug because you're, you're a static generator. Even if you're using static web, uh, you start with a .NET project. And so you can set breakpoints. Um, you, know, you can do all kinds of stuff. Um, in fact, just uh, last week, I released a, a REPL. So when you, when you generate your site, if you have it in preview mode, it'll sit there waiting for you. And you can, you know, just like any other REPL, you can type in code on the command line um, on the fly to do things like introspect your, your site and the pages and stuff like that. Um, so it's designed to kind of be easy to pick up. Um, that said, there aren't a lot of super intro level resources right now. Um, that's more an element of not having gotten to version one yet. Um, you know, there's this, this kind of push and race to get everything feature complete and then, you know, then take a breather and say, okay, now I'm going to go ahead and work on some video content or writing more guides or tutorials or, or examples and that kind of thing. Um, so that just hasn't happened yet. What I will say, if anyone is interested they're coming to static generators from, from square one, right? You've heard this podcast. You're not sure um, if a static generator is for you, but you're curious about it. Maybe you've used Jekyll to do a blog, but you 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 just wrote some markdown and wasn't really sure what was happening under the hood or how that might apply to a non-blog scenario. Um, what I would recommend for those folks is to check out resources um, from either Hugo or Eleventy uh, is another um, JavaScript-based stack site generator that I really like. Um, both of those have... Um, if not a as much of a platform-oriented mindset, at least a mindset around being flexible um, and and providing customizations. Um, and so a lot of the lessons learned, you know, there's there's courses on on those generators on things like Pluralsight. Um, they all have their own sort of intro-level resources. 
Um, you don't even have to use it if you just read through some of those resources from a conceptual perspective and, and kind of get a feel for what is a document? What is front matter? How does front matter flow through a generation? Um, you know, what are the stages involved in something like this? Um, those lessons are all applicable really to any generator, including static. Um, so that's a good place to start if you're starting from totally scratch. Uh, so as we wrap up, uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their careers? Probably the biggest thing I ever did for my own career, you know, and, and I say career loosely um, because I don't know that this necessarily helped me in my day job, but I think it certainly helped me feel more comfortable um, with the community is just get get out there, interact. You know, sometimes that looks like going to user groups in the evening. Um, or, or nowadays, it's it's almost easier because you can most user groups have gone virtual, um, so you don't quite get the same you know face to face time. But but you can attend more, and it, it's easier for folks who are maybe not as privileged as to have the opportunity to to attend in person user groups. You know, interact with folks virtually. Watch GitHub issues. Um, find some projects on GitHub that you're interested in, even if you have no intention of jumping into open source with both feet interacting with people on GitHub by um, commenting on projects, um, watching the issues, um, helping them out with documentation every now and then. Um, you know, you don't have to be this super spend every waking minute on open source to be a open source contributor. Um, sometimes that's as little as, as just corresponding with someone on an issue that you're interested in. Um, jumping on some chat rooms, some slacks. Um, you know, basically just... Look for opportunities to interact with the community around you, because the more that you do that, I think the more opportunities present themselves. It's like a snowball effect. And so that's really fun because, you know, we .NET is special in a way because in one sense, we have, there's this huge iceberg of .NET developers, right? I mean, you look at the trends and the things like the TIBCO rankings, and you know, you know that there are hundreds of thousands of .NET developers out there. But in terms of a active community online, um, whether it's Reddit, Twitter, GitHub, um, you know, that that pool is not nearly as big as communities like JavaScript. Um, and and so I. Um, I'd suggest folks look at that as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to to make a difference, to to really get involved in a way that moves the needle. You know, so that would be my plea to people. Um, and you know, if you want to get started in open source, a completely unrelated to site generation is a big passion of mine. Um, if if anyone out there listening is interested in getting started in open source but doesn't know where to start, drop me a line, and I'd be happy to help. Um, I love to mentor new open source folks who are who are trying to jump in where can our listeners uh go to follow you and maybe keep up with uh whatever it is that you're working on uh so the number one place is probably twitter um i'm a bit of a twitter addict um so you can find me there at dave a glick um github is another place um you know if you're you're interested in following along from a more technical perspective yeah, you can same handle on GitHub. You can follow along there, especially if you're interested in static and and you're comfortable in sort of reverse engineering or or, or reading code as it comes in. Um, that's a great place to see what's going on. 
Um, as new commits drop, you can see kind of the features that are being worked on and that kind of thing. Um, those are probably the main two. Um, I'm I'm not super active on other channels, although I occasionally drop in on Twitch streams and uh, hang out on the .NET Discord and, and places like that. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. Yep. Thank you. That was Dave Glick. Dave has been professionally developing software for almost two decades. He is passionate about open source, .NET, and the intersection of the two. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev and catch us live each week on Twitch. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I am John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 